Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Welcome to week two of our Autour Autumn season, and today we're talking about Shutter Island, the 2010 film screenplay by Lita Calagridis, based on the book Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane, directed by Martin Scorsese. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Okay, so uh, we're talking about Shutter Island, as we talked about last episode, our autumn season. We're looking at auteurs, looking at old movies of theirs and new movies that are releasing. And so obviously today we're doing Scorsese. So today is Shutter Island. Next week, we'll be talking about his new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, both Leonardo DiCaprio movies. Uh, that'll be fun to compare. Uh, and so why are we talking about Shutter Island? <laughs> <laughs> what a good question, Michael. Yeah. Of all the Scorsese movies. Raging Bull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Classic Scorsese. If we had to do a Leo movie, like The Aviators right there, like yeah. there are many others. Yeah. I don't know the answer, but I can try to give an answer, uh, which is that for some reason... This movie has stuck with me and I've really wanted to talk about it with people. And so I've roped all of you in to being that people for me. <laughs> so I saw this movie when it came out on a Friday night with some friends. And I feel like it's very much a Friday night movie. Like it it wants to be like a theater going you're it's a thriller people are in the you know along for the ride kind of thing uh it's big and it's loud and it's not subtle and i remember leaving the theater kind of being like confused about like wait but what is that and wait what did the twist mean and what exactly happened and we went to denny's and spent like hours talking <laughs> about it and it was like a whole experience back in the day and then i forgot about this movie and then, like, five years later, I was like, wait, but what happens in that movie? And then I watched it again. And then I forgot about the movie. And then two years later, I was like, wait, but what happens then? And I watched it again. I think I've seen this movie four, maybe five times, mm -hmm. which is near inexplicable, I understand. <laughs> uh, but I think it speaks to there's just something weird about this movie and unsettling about it as a like a thing that was created and how that matches with the unsettling like you know are you going crazy thematic material of the story itself that somehow over time in my head it all blends together to be like oh there's there's something really interesting here and amazing about this movie and then i watch it and each time i watch it it gets flatter and less amazing but i'm curious to talk about and hear your guys experience like just what what do we make of this movie and why is it so like unique and one of a kind for better or for worse? Did anybody else see it when it came out? Around like not like in the theater, but yeah, that year. OK, I think I saw it in theaters. I don't know Did if it was you? with you, Michael. Maybe it was, but I don't think so. it was before yeah. I moved to L.A. It was like right oh, okay. before. Yeah, I know my husband like really liked it. And I think it was like just because it had like that twisty, you know, what is real kind of vibe to it. So we like bought it on Blu-ray and then we lent it to someone and never got it back. So I, so I haven't <laughs> watched it since then. 
<laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why don't you, yeah, tell me about that your first experience or what you make of this movie? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I like you. It's it's weird. This movie seems to, it has a lot in it. It's so dense with stuff, and then it kind of leaves your head, and you forget what happened. Like I forgot like most of this movie, um, which you'd think it very impactful images and intense scenes. You'd think this stuff would like stay in your mind. And for some reason watching it again, I was like, I know for sure the twist is I remember the main, the big twist, which is mm-hmm. he's actually a patient here. Um, this is all kind of for him, but like, why is a patient there? What the story is with like his dead wife or what happened? Like all of that had left my mind. So yeah, it's interesting. So I, it's hard for me to even describe my first experience with it besides it did give me that satisfying, you know, like especially when I was a teenager in college, like a lot of the movies that I got excited about were twisty movies, you know, movies that were like, what is real? What's not real? What's this person's identity actually? And, and, you know, whoa, mind blowing twist at the end. So it, I really enjoy movies and, you know, enjoyed and still enjoy movies where you can watch that second viewing and it's like, oh man, every single scene, Someone's giving a look. Someone's like doing something over there on the side that is signaling what's actually happening here. That's always really enjoyable. So I, I think I liked it for that reason. Um, but I, I'm also curious to investigate it because, yeah, why, unlike an Inception or like a, a movie that I return to again and again, why did I not really need to return to this movie? And why did I forget it? <laughs> it's a really <laughs> interesting questions. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about the twist because I think one of the reasons that stuck with me is that I didn't get the twist the first time. Mm. And the twist that I thought it was was a cooler twist than it is, in my opinion. (laughs) Oh, I want to hear your uh, your wrong twist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so, Brian, you also saw it earlier than now. Yeah. um, You know, not my favorite 2010 movie about Leonardo DiCaprio convincing himself he's in a different reality to cope with his dead wife. <laughs> I, yeah, I thought it was fine. I, I, I watched it back then and it, it left my head and that was it. It didn't leave my head and stay in there and keep scratching at it. It just went like, okay, you watch Shutter Island, have a nice day. Bye. Um, and, uh, but like, I was definitely curious to watch again, especially after, you know, you, Michael, were just like, we're not Shutter Island again. Let's talk about Shutter Island. I was like, really? That movie? It's a really interesting movie in the sense that it's, it's not like anything like Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning Part One, but it's almost in that way we were talking about some stuff is like really, really good. And some stuff is really, really not good. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, but that's all together in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think like, Scorsese like directs the hell out of this movie in a way that's like really enjoyable Uh, to watch. It's like, he knows what kind of movie he's making. And, um, Robbie Robertson, who just passed away a few weeks ago, um, like, um, sourced all the music, like, like in the shining where it's just like all taken from other places and what's going to work here and stuff. And I think the music is like really fun in this movie. Um, and then the, the story itself I think is fine. You know, we had this, like we had six Sense and fight club, but then we had like, more M. Night Shyamalan movies and like Secret <laughs> Window and we just, we yeah. just kind of kept doing this thing. Secret Window. Yeah. So it was always like by by 2010, it was just like, oh, it's another one of these. Okay. Right. You know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, some of the story stuff is is fine. Some of the like actual writing and the exposition is 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 pretty wonky and, and we can get into that a little bit. But all in all, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty entertaining movie and I'm pretty... I'm left satisfied enough at the end, you know, but not like excited or not like I can't wait to watch it again. Just like, yeah, okay, good job. You movied. 
Nice. Yeah. Cool. So this is my first time watching it. And other than being like really mad about where it goes, um, just because I'm a parent and there's like so many, so many dead children in this movie (laughs) all the time. And uh, like other than than being like resentful, I guess, about that fact, it's such a bizarre mashup of so many different things. Like, it's just not what I expect from Scorsese at all. Like, I think that's a big part of people's kind of whatever about this. If this had been made by anybody else, I feel like there's no chance anybody would still be talking about it or that critics would have even remotely taken it seriously. Like, but for some reason there's this sort of like, you know, crime thriller, psychological twisty genre, million different kinds of genres movie sort of, um, in like almost this cartoonishly Gothic like setting. (laughs) And we're like, you know, like in an Agatha Christie style, like, Ooh, there's a hurricane. No one can leave now. And the graveyard. um, Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's so like, yeah. TV movie in so many ways, but then like Scorsese came in and like, there's, it's hefting all of this, like, or trying to like these weighty ideas sort of, but then it kind of doesn't build to anything. Um, I desperately want to talk about the twists because I was expecting, you know, you know, there are going to be at least a couple um, of reversals in like what you think is going on. And, but I was expecting like the Patricia Clarkson reveal in the middle where he finds the doctor, right. Who he thinks is the doctor in the cave. And she's like, it's a government conspiracy and blah, blah, blah. And I was a doctor here and there, all of that. I was kind of, I think, and we tend to kind of expect that to be the final one, right? Where it's like in the middle, they tell him he's crazy and he starts to believe it. And then there's the like final twist where it's like, no, no, you're not crazy. And like, they've been poisoning you the whole time, Mm -hmm. right? That's more cinematic. That's like more movie movie. And this is just like, nope, the worst thing imaginable happened to you. The end. (laughs) (laughs) The end. And it just doesn't feel right. That kind of that that huge bummer of an ending (laughs) doesn't add up with the like sort of fun of how like sort of splashy and yeah, gothic and like it doesn't add up to sort of the it doesn't make sense with the sort of like genre things that are happening earlier. Like that's something I expect from like a Oscar drama, like a heavy Oscar drama. And then, but this is not that movie. This is just like, here they are spooky vibes, right? Like this guy's (laughs) got a scar across his face. There's a creepy lighthouse over here. Like (laughs) the lady is going, shh. Yeah. (laughs) It's all pretty dumb for like most of the movie. And which is fine. Like I enjoy a lot of that stuff. Right. And then it just like goes to like this horrible, horrible resolution. And then the movie's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I think it, it didn't. This is like one of Scorsese's rare films. I think it's the, maybe the only one in the 21st century that wasn't nominated for any Oscars. Yeah. Uh, and it's telling 
that fact is telling. Um, you know, critics didn't they they thought this movie was fine, as all of you guys are saying, but they didn't respond to it very strongly. And some of them responded to it negatively for sure at the time. And I think I'm excited to get into why. Yeah. If you're a fan of this podcast, then I've got something you'll definitely be interested in. Nebula is not just another streaming service. It's a platform designed by creators for creators. And it's a place where you can find some exclusive content from some of your favorite film analysts. For example, our friend Maggie Mae Fish, who you may remember from our episode on The Lighthouse, has a Nebula series called Unrated. With Unrated, Maggie Mae Fish dives into the history of sex, sexuality, and gender in film, from the silent era to sexploitation to modern erotic movies. It's exactly the kind of thing that wouldn't be viable on YouTube. Nebula subscribers are directly supporting creators like us, allowing us to make the kind of content you can't find anywhere else. But wait, there's more. With Nebula, you also now get access to Nebula classes. Nebula classes are exclusive, high-quality courses from Nebula creators on a variety of topics related to content creation. Our friend Patrick H. Willems has an entire class on the basics of making a movie, in which he deconstructs the production of his first film, Night of the Coconut. To sign up for Nebula, simply click the link in the show notes to get a 40% discount on annual Nebula plans. That's a little over just $2.50 a month. You'll get access to exclusive content and classes, ad-free episodes of this podcast, all while supporting us directly. Win, win. So once again, to sign up for Nebula, simply click the link in the show notes to get a 40% discount on annual Nebula plans. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, so we've got twists. We've got, I think, Brian, as you brought up, this sort of, kind of like we're all talking kind of a dumb B movie executed at a really high level. Like I think mm-hmm. that's going to be really fun to explore. There are these like deep psychological things that it's drawing on, but also these like really cliche genre mishmash of stuff. So lots of stuff to talk about. Let's dive in. Let's start with the twist. Cause I do feel like this, the, the twistiness is like maybe why it has, why it stayed in my brain for so long and even just listening to you there, Tricia, there isn't one twist. There's a bunch of twists, like kind of as as you're saying. And they're, they are sort of like the twist you expect. And I think maybe that's even why thinking back on this movie, I couldn't remember which twist was the real twist. The movie is telegraphing them really hard <laughs> at you, actually. Yeah, but and so so yeah, so the final twist, right, is like, no, he was a mental patient here. This was all a big experiment. And then you get his like last line, which like maybe casts some doubt on like, maybe this did work. Maybe he does know that he's crazy, but he'd rather, you know, lose his mind and like die than remember the truth, right? So there's kind of Yeah, this this movie is just inception. It's just like a different <laughs> right. kind of, it's, it's the spinning top at the end. Yeah. Right. It's really interesting. But and so I think so what I thought was the twist the first time was that there was no way to know whether he was really a mental patient or a, a mm. patient there. And I for some I, I missed, I guess, enough of it that I thought that this movie had done to me what it did to him, which was 
create doubt in my mind of, oh, wait, like, is he crazy or is he actually a cop? Like, maybe there's no way to know. And like, it left you there. And like, it, my mind, it had pulled off this kind of crazy magic trick where it had made me think that I was crazy also for thinking, for buying the story. And the movie does do some of that. Like, that's part of like the journey. It's just then it resolves with a very clear, like, no, this is what actually happened. Here's an extended flashback to the worst thing that could possibly happen. <laughs> We're going to beat you over the head with it. Apparently my brain just erased all of that each time. Um, but yeah, so it's just interesting like that there's so many twists and that's so successful in some of them, but also that some of them are really telegraphed, like you're saying, kind of cliche, like you, know, you didn't have a partner. You were never here, Marshall. Like <laughs> around there, it starts to get like, wait, what? Like, I feel like you're... What are you, movie? So, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys make of all the twistiness? And do you like my twist better? I think I think it's interesting because this movie, watching it a second time, it is almost, it, it's going too hard on the clues. Like, it, it does feel like, it, I think the first time watching it, there's an unsettling feeling of, is this intentional right now? Is this Is this good? Is this bad? Like, what is going on? And... So even on the first viewing, there's not really a coherent reality. There's not even a coherent false reality uh, that that you're believing right. in. The false reality is like so janky because it is. There's so many like signs that something's wrong, and I think in an ideal situation, there's kind of like an explanation uh, for all those things yeah. like so it's like so I have this view of reality. Ah, it's all this all adds up to the conspiracy. Uh, or whatever, but I feel like there's enough strange things happening that that don't make sense as part of a conspiracy. Also, uh, so basically, the, I guess my point is, it's a strange movie in which, like, the twist is broadcast very intensely, even if it doesn't give you enough clues to like know exactly what's going on. It like it's like kind of like really trying to make sure you see clues of weirdness, but they're not coherent in a way where you can form a false theory in advance of the truth. Um, so that's what I think was just weird about watching it again was, okay, this all feels wrong, but like, what is the story I'm supposed to construct from this wrongness? I don't really know. Hmm. Um, and then it feels like maybe like just bad filmmaking sometimes or like, is it intentional that it's so green screening in the beginning when they're on a boat Were they ever, were they not on a boat ever? And so it's like an intentional weird meta thing to like, have it be super fake looking like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> the water glass. Can we talk about the oh, yeah. shot with the water glass? It, right. Like, I my brain melted, and I was just like, I can't believe this. And I rewound it and watched it like four different times. I was like, There's no glass in her hand. Um, okay, when Michael, you know that moment, Michael? Me, like, he doesn't know. Sorry, um, what? It's like one of the most obvious. Like, yeah. I know. Yeah, he's interviewing one of the other patients. The one who writes Run. No one oh, who writes yeah. Run on I his book. Her. Yeah. And she at one point asks his partner to get up and get her a glass of water. And then he like brings it back over. Right. And she gulps, she like picks up the water and gulps out of it and then sets it down really quick on the table. Uh -huh. And the way it's edited, it's hard to kind of catch it, but there's no glass in her hand. She like mm. drinks like this. When she's doing this, it's and just it, empty. And there's just nothing yeah. in her hand. Wow. And then she sets editing. it down and there's a glass, very editing. But it's just like, She's auditioning for Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> it's so quick and it's kind of near the bottom of the frame, 
that and then the and the sound you can you hear in the sound mix her drinking the water and then she sets the glass down and there is a glass in the next shot that you really wouldn't notice it unless you noticed it but then so i was like oh okay i watched it like four times i was like definitely no glass in her hand all right now the movie's going to mess with me like i'm ready like the editing mm. is really going to start messing with me but then it doesn't it just feels like a one-off continuity thing or there's another moment later where Teddy's partner goes to reach into his pocket and pull out the intake form for patient 76. And he like reaches in twice because there's a wide shot where he reaches into his pocket. And then in the next shot, he hasn't reached for it yet. And he goes again and reaches for it again. And it's just probably a continuity thing or it's on purpose. Right. (laughs) But it's not consistent enough. Yeah. Those were the only Mm -hmm. two I saw and they didn't, they don't seem to mean anything in particular. It's wild. Hmm. There's, a sort of act two thing going on here, I think, where it's like act one, I'm going, okay, look, the exposition is clunky, but you're giving me a lot of information, right? You know, like, right. like the thing that was the clunkiest to me is when they say to the the captain of the ship, they're like, like that where we're headed? And he's like, yup. And then he gives them like five separate <laughs> details about the <laughs> island. He's like, just a yes or no question. He's like, yeah, all the way around the back, it's like this. And there's the only way in and out. And just like, okay, thank you. Thank you, writer. <laughs> um, uh, but then I, I'm finding myself to be like well-seated by the time that we are 10 minutes in, right? I'm like, I know the geography of the place. I know where, where the wards are. I know what we're here for and all that kind of stuff, right? And then in act three with the reveal stuff, I totally agree with what you guys are saying. Like, oh, it would have been really cool if like this thing meant that and that thing meant that. But at the very least, I'm like, what the twist is has been set up by the movie. Not just right, telegraphed, sure. but set up by the actual premise and and I guess theme a, a bit. Um, yeah, theme plenty of the movie. Uh, yeah, absolutely. With, with the sort of fake Rachel character, the character who is like telling themselves that things are all right, you know. Um, and And I'm just like, okay, that's cool. But then act two is just a whole lot of stuff. It's a whole lot of here's this character and here's the other character who actually is that character that you thought you already met once. And then here's this other thing that happened and here's this. And again, it's pretty entertaining, but it's definitely where I start to feel unmoored uh, for <laughs> no pun intended um, uh, and, and just sort of like, OK, I'm I'm lost now, whereas I I was enjoying like, okay, they found Rachel, but now what's going on here? And like, what are they doing? Oh, they're doing an experiment. Like where I'm always know what my kind of immediate dramatic question is. And then act two, it starts to just kind of get wishy-washy in a way that it takes a while to kind of get back on track for the, for the finale. I think where I really start to feel that is when they go into the maximum security building. Yeah. And I think, cause yeah, once again, I, I, I don't have a coherent theory of what's going on so it's like this feels magical like the way he's going through kind of tunnels and doorways and there's like this guy from his past who's like in a cell here and it doesn't feel like we're in reality anymore but once again i don't have i haven't been giving enough information yet even about like the possible hallucinogenics that he's been given to to be wondering about that i think that comes afterwards right like he doesn't meet um patricia clarks until after that sequence um so i just I, i think yeah, part of what maybe would have helped that second half of the second act would have been something where that like he he's told, like you said, Trisha, like at the midpoint or we get we get one twist at the midpoint, which is, oh, this is all a conspiracy. They're drugging you. If you think you're going crazy, it's because they want you to go crazy. 
and then I can interpret these kind of all over the place sequences through that lens. Yeah. But I think that 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 twist comes like almost too late. So I'm just kind of like I'm just along for the ride, but I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, there's a couple things going on. The first, I'm so glad you pointed out, Brian, that the dramatic question mm-hmm. gets lost a lot, I think. Right. Where once we find Rachel um, or, you know, Emily Mortimer, who is playing Rachel uh, earlier Rachel on. Rachel one, yeah. Rachel <laughs> one. Um, once we, Once she is found, then the dramatic question kind of ceases to exist or it ceases to be like driving the plot. It turns into a very vague what's going on. Vague, yeah, what's going on. But there's also like only a very vague plan, right? So Teddy says, I want to, you know, blow the lid off this place. I'm going to get proof that they're doing experiments on people. But we don't even know what that would be. Like he, they end up with the intake form and they end up talking to Noyce um, in the maximum security. That's that guy's name. I, I know, but like every time, and he says it. He say, he literally says it twice. Like when he's giving his like original monologue, he's like Noyce. Noyce did a thing, and I'm just like, you can't say Noyce with noise. your Boston accent. Noyce. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, he's like, I'm gonna find latest. I also am gonna find Noyce, or I have this all this information from some other dude that I talked to one time. Then who's patient 76? What's happening? 67. What's happening in the lighthouse? Like, there's just, is this guy a Nazi? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, there's all of these questions, but there's no conclusive, like, plan of if we could get X, then we would have the evidence we need, right? Like, if there was some kind of smoking gun about the experiments he thinks are going on or yeah alex maybe if he had a more concrete idea of what those experiments were he's like they're lobotomizing people here they're doing it in the lighthouse i'm gonna get a video of it or whatever because it's the 50s i'm gonna get a Mm. photograph of it um then i'm like okay we're gonna do this exact plan to get this exact piece of evidence that's a dramatic question that I can follow through the second half of the second act. It's crazy to me that even like at the end of act two, after he meets Patricia Clarkson and he's walking around the compound, the the dramatic question is so vague at that point that the guard comes to pick him up and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, just wandering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just, just wandering is kind of like act yeah. two. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you, you correct. That's how this has felt. Yeah, and well, so I think what's so disorienting and, and was confusing, but also kind of like weirdly intoxicating for me the first time I watched it is the movie is executed, as we've said, at such a high level, like there's such yes. confidence in it that it made me feel like I was crazy, whereas like, I don't, this doesn't make sense, but like, but the movie seems... But surely but, it does. But surely right? it does. So like, it's what's going on? And I feel like it like helped that meta connection identification with the protagonist weirdly for me. So yeah. And and so I remember people saying at this time that this was a B movie and the departed was the B movie. Like those are the two B movies that Martin Scorsese directed and like the departed. I was like, I love the departed. That's great. Like there's part of me that loves it when these kind of, again, Friday night, fun popcorn movies, whatever are executed at these weird high levels. Uh, 
but it's so interesting. So, I th so going back to the very beginning, like you were pointing out, Brian, the arrival to the island has some exposition that's like so like on, so the, on nose, the nose, yeah. and also just so like this jump, like cliches essentially of like like you're saying we're going to this island there's a storm coming there's only one way off like let's just like checking the boxes of like you are going to be locked onto this island the music is like loud and bombastic <laughs> and just really announcing itself and like no it's like this is a thriller like <laughs> like it's over like whelming and so it's interesting to see sort of how scorsese deals with those kind of lower elements let's say uh and then i i feel like there are these moments that in an, in the hands of somebody else wouldn't be that impactful at all and the sequence that i kind of always think about is when uh teddy leonardo DiCaprio goes into the warden's office for the first time and meets the nazi guy like that whole sequence is like mesmerizing and like mm -hmm. gorgeous and disorienting but like enthralling you're seeing these flashbacks the way it's lit when you're seeing him with his wife you know it's this really bright like rim lighting but then he's there also you're seeing the holocaust imagery for the first time and the papers are like flying all over the put like there's something like and like i was in a trance during all of that mm -hmm. and i'm only like partially sure what the point of all of that was but it was extremely effective whatever it was like emotionally but I wonder what that would have been in the script and what that could have or would have looked like not done by a Scorsese. And so I think like and those those two things happen pretty close together, right? Like the arrival and then this crazy flashback sequence. And those are sort of two clear examples in my mind of sort of B-level cliche doing genre stuff, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden, this crazy high execution of a sequence that kind of encapsulates the weird like whiplash of this movie for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for me, the direction is in itself kind of hypnotic, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of strong style that's asserting itself. And, you know, even the music, going as hard as it does like it's it's too hard but it's creating this strong impression like i guess mood is what i'm looking for or tone the tone of this is so strong and somehow feels more distinct than um the generic version of this story right mm -hmm. uh where it feels like scorsese has managed to pinpoint something real in the midst of all of these like psychological drama cliches mm -hmm. where there are times when he gets at this um, really deep, you know, sort of wound that you would find in, like I said, a, a heavier drama um, or a more subtle grounded drama. And then, and he's doing it with all the fanfare and, like splashiness of, you know, the genre um, tropes, but it's the style that I think anchors all of it. And yet, I don't know. It just like, <laughs> it, 
it, it, it, the whiplash that you're describing is exactly the right word where you never quite can get your footing in like, oh, he knows what he's doing. It's all going to be okay. Like we're in the hands <laughs> of Scorsese. He knows it all. It's going to come together. Um, and then you're just like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Like the rats for some reason, right? The rats are so... It was his rat period and I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, it's too much. Right. Yeah. I mean, so something to, to sort of zoom out a little bit um, and go back to, you know, Autor Autumn, I think what's super interesting is, you know, we, we have these auteurs like, um, like a, a Nolan or a Fincher who basically have always ever made the movie that they just wanted to make next. They never just, you know, except for Fincher's in Alien 3. But after that, he was like, nope, just making my movies now. Um, and, but then you have others like Scorsese who doesn't have to do a lot of this, but he, you know, he's always made Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and Goodfellas and The Irishman, right? He's always made his his movies. And then he's done Cape Fear and The Age of Innocence and Kundun and Hugo and Shutter Island. Like he's taken on these weird projects and he usually does really well at directing different kinds of things in different styles. And I think that's that's impressive as opposed to someone who's just like good at doing their one thing and that's all they do and just execute, execute. Um, what I'm not sure about, because I haven't seen maybe enough, uh, uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff or whatever, is if he does the the like Fincher thing that we talked about of, well, I need to make this the best movie I can make it. Or is he just taking a script that exists and directing that well? Right. And I feel like if you and obviously the directing in, includes the, the editing that comes after it and, and a lot of that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't be surprised if he's someone who he is just taking what's on the page and trying to put it to vision. And then so therefore, if on the page, it's a little sloppy on the page, it's you know, it's things aren't coming together quite right. Then maybe he's like not even thinking about that or he's maybe feeling like he, that's not his job. Like his job is just to show up and direct. Right. Whereas, um, whereas we know for sure there are other directors who like they, they will not <laughs> direct a scene a, a second if they don't know exactly what it's for and what it's in service of and all that kind of stuff. So I just, I think his career is really interesting and I'm, and I'm really impressed by the, the, the Scorsese movies and then the sort of non-Scorsese movies that he's done. Um, but it could also, the thing that we're talking about could come from him just being like, I'm just here to direct this thing. I'm not here to decide what the right way to tell this story is, you know, which isn't necessarily the right way to direct a movie, but it could just be the way that he thinks about it. I think he's definitely, you know, making choices about how to do this story style wise. But I agree. I think I don't, I don't feel like an authorial on the writing side, I don't feel like right. a Scorsese authorial voice necessarily coming in. It's more about I'm going to make the hell out of this movie and I'm going to take inspirations from I've read online. Uh, he was inspired by low budget 1940s zombie zombie movies mm. like mm. like he was taking inspiration from that low, low art places. So I think he was kind of just having fun with like, yeah, doing a doing a big B movie and not necessarily worrying about making it like yeah, the Fincher thing of it's got to be perfect. Well, yes, but also there are these scenes of dialogue that feel like they're thematically grappling with something that, you know, when we talk about auteurs, we often note style things that are consistent across their work. 
but also thematic things, you know, our, our greatest auteurs come back to the same themes over and over, whatever it is that fascinates them. And one of Scorsese's is violence and cruelty, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the consequences that uh, people who live in worlds of violence and cruelty, the consequences that, that, that play out in their life. Like thinking about, again, about The Departed, which I love too, um, you have uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in that movie wrestling with himself about what what he's supposed to do with the violence that he's committed now he's you know doing it for like a, a worthy cause um in his mind but he still bears some of the trauma from the violence that he has to commit in that um in that film and we see this you know the irishman's another example and there are a bunch of Scorsese movies that are kind of about this thing where the long lasting hold that violence can play um, on your psyche. And this movie is entirely about that. Um, so, you know, I think it's an interesting question. We'll probably know that never know the answer to about where he personally connects with this material or doesn't, but there's no doubt that, or, you know, whether he personally influenced the writing of it, you know, the only thing I've read is that he added the last line, which isn't in the book, mm. um, which is, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's character asks, is it better to live as a monster or die a good man? Um, but I think that there is something really interesting thematic at its heart. And then, you know, connecting it to World War II, and the PTSD and the trauma that veterans went through at the time. And also, you know, his wife having a history of mental illness and depression. And like, there are very real psychological uh, conditions that are being explored or at least portrayed, um, even if they're not explored with total thoroughness here or accuracy. Yeah, I'll say that, you know, on this rewatch, um, you know, because I'd forgotten everything. Uh, the thing that did surprise me the most was that uh, really being so grounded in that post-World War II moment and how much yeah. of the psychology and the character arc was about that moment. And even the state of psychology and the state of, you know, uh, conspiracy and, you know, government programs, all of it felt very grounded in that time and place. And I think that's where the movie did feel elevated to me was it wasn't just random thriller of the week it was investigating the themes and fears and uh yeah, traumas specific to this moment where like yeah i think the movie makes us you know witness and go through his personal trauma in the climax um we flash back to the horrific death of his children um but i think the way i can make sense of the movie making us go through that is it's almost like a microcosm of just the most um, unimaginable thing had just happened in the world. You know, this, the biggest war ever, the most people dead, the Holocaust, like the, the worst thing humans could do to humans had happened um, on, an, on an industrial scale. And I think that that is so disorienting and so traumatic and so in, insane. Um, and I think the movie is just playing with, yeah, like how does one make sense of that, of, of like the unimaginable, the unfathomable? Um, so that, in that way, the movie 
when it was going to those places, I was feeling, yeah, that we're no, we're no longer like in B movie territory. This is like that Oscar movie territory. But then it descends back into like the cliche or weird random scene. Um, so that's part of yeah, the weird mix for me is like it does feel like it has some integrity in in that historical moment. Um, but it is still all over the place. Uh, it's got that and then it's got the just, you know, hey, your partner's not real. Now wander around. <laughs> like, <laughs> Literal anagrams. Your name was the same right. letters. Yeah. Like, oh, the anagrams. Like, <laughs> I like anagrams. You know, why, why not? I know, but he has like, you know, like an easel that it would like <laughs> a pointer. Just, you know? that's, that's almost like a satire. Like, yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. has the whiteboard ready. Yeah. Right. There you yeah. go. <laughs> the, the lighthouse office is like all set for like, you know, here's like area one, area two. Yeah. Also, a line. Uh, speaking of the lighthouse, a line that broke my brain was when he first sees it. He, Leah goes, "What's that tower over there?" <laughs> it's like, it's a lighthouse. You know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> He's just never been to any place with a lighthouse. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm thinking about it now, and I do feel like my brain kind of like clips off the movie once he goes into the lighthouse, which is kind of what he's been doing right like that's kind of the loop that he goes on so yeah i don't know if that's a coincidence maybe michael is the only one who really understands this movie like on this on a deep you know strange level that mm. scorsese intended he's probably seen it as many times as we all have combined so <laughs> <laughs> certainly would not say i understand this movie but it did clearly i yeah i feel like a lot of these themes a lot of these like you're saying that the places that it explores and the unsettling nature of it for some reason those things like unsettle me also so like it, it feels like it gets a hold of me and then just like has me in its grasp like the whole time to the point where i feel like i'm maybe tuning out plot details that don't matter uh which is probably the way to best enjoy this movie in, right in yeah <laughs> yeah the backstory is more complicated than it needs to be um because the clues about they they're combining the details about Rachel's like supposed illness with actually his life. Like I actually don't get what their plan was. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a scene, there's a scene where Chuck, right, um, is saying, Well, you were looking into them. So maybe they were looking into you. Maybe they like so. But if you're supposed to be the doctor, right? <laughs> why are why are you feeding this fear or this like weird conspiracy that he's having? You're just feeding it all. I don't I don't know. Or like are just trying to gain his confidence? That doesn't make sense upon rewatch at all. And then yeah, the dead children that goes with Rachel. No, the dead children go with you. No, the dead children <laughs> go with Michelle Williams. <laughs> right. Like I don't know. It's just all such a mess. Trisha, you need to write a, a blog about Now You See Me in Shutter Island that's all just about Mark Ruffalo saying things that don't make sense that once you know make the twist. Sense <laughs> yeah. It's so true. Yeah, but even, yeah, because it's like there's like the double backstory of like their apartment did burn down, but like his wife didn't die in that. She did it. And like, yeah, right. Yeah, the fire plus the water. Yeah. <laughs> It's so much. And then there's like lettuce and George Noyce. And, you know, like it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, there's latest, like one. Yeah. Yeah. There's like one too many. What is it? Lettuce? Uh, <laughs> All like, the names are like yeah, that. Like, what are any of these sandwich names toppings. that don't make any sense? <laughs> Cabbage Patch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, yeah, it's pretty fun. And like that, you know, Emily Mortimer, I guess, is just one of the orderlies there. But they were like, we're going to cast you to play his wife to freak him out. And as if you were in a ghost movie. And she like scene. really goes for that performance. Like if, it, yeah. if yeah. that if actually literally orderly, happened. Yeah. Like if that wasn't in his mind, if that actually happened, that's like she's a really committed actor, that orderly. Like, right. <laughs> in the wrong profession. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's Ugh. just it's 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 too messy. And this reminds me of what lies beneath. Right. When we talked about mm-hmm. that. And it's just like the the backstory of what happened doesn't make sense once you know it. And then the way that they're teasing out the details don't make it click together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we move to, like, <laughs> lessons? <laughs> like, what lessons are we going to take away from Shutter Island? Brian, do you want to start? Sure. I, the first thing I'll say is I, is I hate the coming home talking to your partner uh, when they're not there you. so much. We need to yeah. ban I'm, it. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but it's yeah. just like, what, who? It's like, I get you come home every day and you have the same conversation, but, like, you just assume they're in the other room and listening and not, I don't know, taking a crap. Like I don't, there's just <laughs> it's one thing to be like, Hey, I'm home. It's another to be like, I'm going to have a whole conversation with you. Um, but uh, no, I, I think I, this isn't so much a lesson as much as just sort of a, a way that I'm thinking about all the stuff we're talking about. I was, I was mapping out a season of a TV show recently, which, you know, it takes a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, time and, and sort of like management and there are eight characters. And I was like, I want to, I want to force myself to figure out what in over 10 episodes, what is going on without all eight of those characters. So I literally made a spreadsheet like matrix and forced myself to just start filling in these 80 squares basically. Right. But then that was so informative to me where I was like, Oh, right. If she's going to be doing this in episode six, then I want to be kind of teasing that in episode four. And I want to kind of like put the work in and I feel like I wish there were better tools for us as writers to mm. do this with this kind of movie. And I think Ryan Johnson shared his knives out like doodle. That's basically just like a whole bunch of lines pointing to other lines and stuff. Um, but, but I think this is an interesting movie to study, to see when this, when the information that is either given or revealed um when it's helpful, when it's not, when it was set up correctly, when it wasn't, you know, cause I think it, it's both it, like this movie does stuff that works and then it does stuff that doesn't quite work. So I think one is for yourself, figure out whatever way in whatever you're making to visually actually map out the things you're trying to achieve. And, and it doesn't have to be like a whodunit or anything like that. It can just be a drama, but just think about if this is going to happen here, then what are the steps along the way for that character and this character in this scene? And, you know, and then also look at a scene or look at a moment and go, is this necessary? Is this actually doing anything? Because I feel like that's where maybe some of act two could have been cut out of shutter Island of just like, Oh yeah, that thing is just more confusing. Yes. We want to confuse the audience. Yes. We want to take them off, you know, off the, um, the path a little bit, but at what point are you just out there, you know? So yeah, one, find ways to do that for yourself. But two, I think, I think watch this movie, like almost you could watch this movie and actually plot out all the information that is being given out in every scene. And then you could go back and say, what was actually in service to the story being told and what wasn't, you know? And I, I think it's, that's good to do in movies where it works. It's good in movies where it doesn't work. And I think it's really good to do in movies like this, where it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, want that tool to exist also 
very badly. I feel like there's lots of tools that have been tried to be created and none of them mm -hmm. do all the things and it bothers me. But that will not stop me from downloading every app and trying them all. <laughs> um. <laughs> awesome. Alex, what's your lesson? I just wanted to call out the scene with Patricia Clarkson. I just, mm -hmm. I think there's something about that just like primal, like there's just fire in front of their faces and you, you cast this just like amazing actress, Patricia Clarkson, to just give this long monologue, essentially laying out you know, the, the theory that I was waiting for, you know, the, what is the alternate explanation for what is going on here that we can maybe buy and then like filter the events of the movie through. And I think, yeah, kind of like Brian, it's kind of like a, I wish this was the thing. I think I wish that was slid to the midpoint. The midpoint is kind of now right where it's like your partner doesn't exist. Is that or what is the no. midpoint? Do we know? Like <laughs> midpoint might be noise. The noise. Uh, yeah. Is it? Yeah. I yeah. think that might be the midpoint where There's he goes. Where they sure. go into the cell block and okay. noise. Like post. Or maybe, or maybe. Maybe it's when they're in the graveyard and he's like, "They were looking right. into you while you were looking into them." I feel like maybe it's around there because also yeah. then I think they find Rachel and that's kind of the midpoint. To Brian's yeah. point, oh, yeah. that we can't like quickly identify right. it. As, We've diagnosed yeah. the problem. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anyway, but I think that scene is where I re-engage with the movie because like you have a really compelling alternate theory of what's going on. And I think I think the lesson that is not repeatable unless you're an A-list director making A-list movies is hire somebody like Patricia Clarkson for that kind of a scene where like I, I think if it was a lesser actress or a less interesting actress, I wouldn't be so riveted just like watching the fire flicker in front of her face as she lays out her story. Um, but I, I love I love a good uh, scene like that where it's an actor who comes in for one scene. You never see them again, but they make such an impression because they just like are the perfect person to like tell this story to the main character. Um, so I, I, I love that scene and I, I wish it was placed differently so that it could be more of like a hinge point of the movie versus kind of like we're almost done. Yeah, go get in the car with the warden and now lighthouse time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had forgotten basically the entire cast of this movie apart from like two people or something. So it was definitely like every time, you know, the go around the chair. Oh, it's Max Monsetto. I'm like, oh, it's yeah. Patricia Clark. Yeah. Oh, it's Emily Morton. Oh, it's Jackie Earl Haley. It's Elias Katias. You know, it was mm -hmm. just like, obviously that's cheating when you or Martin Scorsese, you can just right. get whoever you want Call in your movie. Up. But yeah. right. Mm -hmm. But But even, I mean, even just the sense that like all these characters are notable, like even, even the warden, you know, like, like everyone has their own sort of costume or their own way of being or their own way of talking or whatever that to your point, Alex, it's just like, they are, they're calling attention to themselves. It's like, you should, you should remember this scene. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And that so many of them have a history of playing mentally disturbed people. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And you're just like, I don't know who to trust. None of these guys are good. Um, right. I think is doing some of that meta work too. Casting is yeah. my lesson too. Um, Cause I wanted to talk about Leo for a few minutes, which is I was watching this movie and I was feeling some of the feelings that I had about Brad Pitt when we were talking about seven recently, which is like, you're really charismatic. And I really like watching both of these actors. Um, but I'm not always sure that they're like good actors. <laughs> um, 
And, but I will say that there's this um, ease to the way that Brad Pitt carries himself or like sort of this casualness where you feel like even when he's doing too much, like that when somebody says, you know, cut or whatever, he could like just shake it off and walk away probably. And you don't get that sense with Leo. Like even when Leo is doing too much, you get the feeling that he cares so much about <laughs> every line that he says in every scene all the time. Um, and so for that reason, I think he's better suited to a movie like this. And he overall really works in it. Like even when he's kind of too big or the script is being too bizarre to play, <laughs> um, <laughs> his like investment in the scenes is palpable. And I think it's to his credit and to Martin Scorsese's credit that he is able to carry something like this off. And they made eight movies together now. (laughs) Um, So clearly Marty sees something. There's, there's something in Leo that he's, uh, you know, linked into very tightly. Um, And I don't know if I would say this is uh Leo's best movie or even best Scorsese movie. But I do think there's something very raw about him um, that even when I'm like, no one on earth could deliver that line and neither can you. um, (laughs) It's still just like, but okay. Like I kind of buy like you're, you're so earnest. He's very earnest Mm -hmm. and he kind of makes me believe it. It's almost part of that opening scene in the boat that like uh, is almost giving too much away is just how, like watching it a second time, I'm like, oh, you're clearly just kind of a disoriented patient of Mark Ruffalo in this scene, which like, I think is, but like, I think he he embodies that like kind of too much energy really well, which as you were saying, Trisha, is perfect for this particular role. Mm-hmm. And Leo and Brad Pitt in their first movie together, finally, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, like they are playing the characters that you are describing them as you know what i mean like leo is the like i gotta work hard and do that and 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 brad pitt's playing like i'm just gonna show up and you know see what happens yeah not that brad pitt doesn't work hard in his roles obviously but but there but there is a sense of there's a sense of like casualness about the way he carries himself in a way that works super well for a lot of his characters exactly yeah yeah i feel like at some point be fun to have a conversation about what is a good actor what is good acting i feel like i don't even know enough to have that conversation but like I think there's a lot that we just kind of take for granted when people say that of like what we think it means, but what does it actually mean? And like, is it you forget that you're watching that actor or is it just that you love watching that actor so much that you want to go on the journey that like they're currently in? And I think all these spectrums are valid and really fascinating. I have many thoughts. Well, and one of the things that we don't get to talk about very often, or we, we tend not to talk about very often on this show is the director's role as the person who directs the actors. Right. Because it's not when we say a director is an auteur, it's not just that they're influencing the story or that they're stylistically directing how it's told via camera movements and all of the editing, all of those things. Yes, but at least half of the director's job is directing the actors. And the relationship between director and actor is a major part of the way that a movie turns out and the way, you know, movies that have the lasting legacy that they do 
stay because of the staying power of the performance. And that is directed by the director. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to, you know, it's, it's so shrouded that it's always hard to know. Like we don't Mm -hmm. often get those to hear about how it went, unless it went really badly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those stories sometimes make it out. (laughs) Um, But how the like individual moments between, you know, by the actor are arrived at in the process between the actor and the director, that is a large part of directing. Um, And so something like this, this was his fourth movie with Leo at the time. Um, The Aviator, I believe, was the first one. Gangs of New York, I think. Gangs of New York would have been before The Aviator. I think so. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, just before. Yes, Gangs of New York. Thank you. Um, But yeah, this is sort of deep already into the working relationship between these actors and like you can kind of see or at least to my mind the way that he fits in this role i'm gonna say has a lot to do with probably the direction and the collaboration between the two yeah yeah that's really good call out that'll be interesting to then in this new movie about killers of the flower moon yeah like Mm -hmm. revisit some of that in in that context so and the topic of casting, just Ben Kingsley, I think, oh, yes. so, so so perfect good. in this role. Like yeah. he just embodies like both the kind of authority of that like head psychiatrist, psychologist, but also just like really deep compassion. And you, you believe that he is that kind of special doctor in the time trying to find an alternative method, like yeah, just really good casting with that character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we already so all the lessons I was going to bring up, we've already like hit. So I'm going to just say again that, yeah, I think casting, as we're saying, is hugely important. And I think all these add up together. Uh, but the cast is amazing. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons this movie shines and it's better than it maybe should be. As you were saying, Alex, the order of information matters like in my opinion, that's what a story is, is like what happens and in what order. Like that's when you put all the pieces in the right order, you get an emotional response. And when you're doing something like a twist and when you're trying to do all these things, as you were saying, Brian, tracking all that, making sure that the logic is there, but also the emotional impact is there. As you were pointing out, Alex, like give a false narrative for us to buy into, like that shapes the experience of how you receive like the following information, all really important. And uh, as we've talked about, like this movie is executed at such a high level, which reminds me to just like make every scene amazing. And like, I think a perfectly structured narrative is something I always like and want to pursue. But there is clearly something to be said about like style and tone and just executing the visceral experience of a story and like when it's pointed at these like deep psychological truths, like it hits and it resonates, even if the plot maybe isn't. Uh, and so I, yeah, that's the thing I'm taking away from this anyways. Like it's clear that every scene was stretched and pushed to be as impactful as it could possibly be. And the sum total of all that is a really unique experience that has yeah stayed with me. Anyway, for the last 13 years. Nice. Yeah. Noise. Noise. Really. Noise. George, George Noise. <laughs> What's your name, George? Noise. <laughs> <laughs> Latest.
Also, what <laughs> latest is I hate not it? A name, simply not a name. <laughs> <laughs> just start over with your anagram building at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just be like, well, maybe his name doesn't need to be Teddy or whatever. Sorry to you, latest listener. That we like you, <laughs> latest. Yeah. Thanks for being a fan. What else have you guys been watching recently, Alex? What have you been watching recently? So I was traveling recently, which meant I was on airplanes. And so I was looking for a good airplane movie and I was scrolling and found Knock at the Cabin. And I thought, I'm going to watch this movie on an airplane because that's probably the only reason I'm going to watch it. Um, and it's just it was really interesting experience watching Knock at the Cabin, which is you know, the latest M. Night Shyamalan movie. Um, and I really actually was getting kind of hopeful and just the, the opening act because it actually has a really compelling, you know, a couple of protagonists at its center. It's like a gay couple played by Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge, and they have like an adorable daughter. And they're actually, you know, interesting characters and you're rooting for them and like you want their them to be okay. And they've got Dave Bautista as this really interesting kind of bad guy who seems to like not want to do what he's doing. And there's an interesting like possibility in the movie. And it just feels like every other M. Night Shyamalan movie, like most of his movies it just as it goes on you're like no like you couldn't <laughs> like i wanted this to be good i was like on your side i was like wanting it to be good and like why so lame with the way it goes and why is this so lame and this is the ending what are you even saying with this ending what um so yeah it's 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 that experience but <laughs> there are some good performances and uh, some good scenes uh and then a lot of not great scenes. Uh, and that is not get the cabin. And one of my yeah. favorite patron exclusive episodes that we did was on the village where mm -hmm. we yes. got into this exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the trend is continuing. Um, but, you know, worth a watch if you're just at home, want to watch something on the TV, not worry <laughs> about it too much. Knock at the cabin <laughs> or on an airplane. Or on an airplane. There you go. <laughs> nice. Okay. Trisha, what have you been watching? Yeah, um, I'm not even sure how or why I ended up watching this movie, but uh, I saw a movie from 1973 called The Last Detail. Uh, it's a Jack Nicholson movie. Hal Ashby, right? Yeah, it's a Hal Ashby movie. Yeah. Which I've seen a couple of Hal Ashby movies recently that I had not seen before. Um, so, you know, it's a comedy. Uh, it's very much a 70s, like, yeah, 73 comedy. Um, Randy Quaid. Uh, is in it and then the other the third lead is uh, played by Otis Young um, but it's about these uh, Marines I guess and they're just kind of um, you know ne'er-do-well lazy lazy guys uh, and that's Jack Nicholson and, and Otis Young and then they are assigned to take Randy Quaid who is a prisoner very young Randy Quaid to prison basically they have to take him like down the east coast or whatever uh to prison he's going to prison for stealing 40 dollars, and he's gonna go to prison for eight years and he's like a 19 year old kid and so they basically just decide you know we've got five days we're supposed to take him from here to there escort the prisoner but they instead decide to show him a good time and so they, it's just about them, you know, uh, basically getting into trouble um, as they take young Randy Quaid to jail. And um, I really liked it. It's really funny. It's 
and like unexpectedly, like a lot of those 70s movies, it's got like this grit and grime to it. All the cityscapes, it's freezing cold. Quite obviously, they shot it in the dead of winter, like on the East Coast in Boston and D.C. and in New York. And it just looks hellish. And there's this, I don't know, sort of rawness to it about like people who have made choices in life and I don't know what they mean, I guess, you know, nobody wants to be doing what they're doing. And so they're kind of trying to like make the best of it. And I don't know. I really, really liked it. it. And yeah, it's also very funny. Randy Quaid is tall. I don't know if you guys know this about him. He's like five, he's like six, five or oh, something. Um, he makes Jack Nicholson look really short. <laughs> I was just like, I didn't think Jack Nicholson was very short, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great little movie. The last detail, 1973. Nice. Cool. All right. And Brian, what about you? Uh, well, I did rewatch uh, Harold Maude recently. Speaking of Hal Ashby. Oh, there you go. Movie, yeah. So yeah. Um, movie is a blast yes, it is. um but uh I, I watched an even older movie which was the 1946 best picture winner the best years of our lives <gasps> oh uh, you did oh yeah. i love that movie it's a really it's lovely movie oh it's so, so good it's yeah <laughs> awesome i'm glad you guys have seen it too um but yeah for, for anyone who doesn't know it's it's um about these three um soldiers who are coming back from world war ii and they're coming back to their sort of smallish town um and they sort of are just like adapting to to readapting with regular life and you know it's like it's like red getting out of prison in shawshank right just like what do i do now <laughs> like how do i how do i cope it's a three-hour movie and i just found it so captivating and i was just like so with these characters the whole time and i was just like so happy to keep watching it you know i wasn't just like all right let's get on with it i was just like i, I could watch this for 10 hours um and and then there's one one of the three actors um or one of the three characters has uh hooks for hands he lost his hands in the uh, in the army and that was part of his a uh, huge part of his story is is coping with that and how what's his family going to think right and there was something about his performance where i was like he he feels like a different actor than i'm used to and i looked him up and he's not an actor he is he was a soldier who lost his hands and they hired him to come and play this role and then he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor uh, when the Oscars rolled around. But they were so convinced he wasn't actually going to win that they gave him an honorary Oscar that year. But then he ended up winning anyway. <laughs> so he's like the only actor to win two Oscars for the same performance in the same year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really. And, he, and yeah, he, he's great. Um, he's great in a way, but you could just tell he's like not an actor. But that makes his performance like almost more intimate and personal. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad that I have the support from, from the team. But like I thought this movie was awesome. And it's definitely one of my favorites of, of that era. So the best years of our lives. I think I watched it in film school. Were okay. you thinking of that because of Dana Andrews, because of the, the connection with this movie? So one of the other actors in that movie, Dana Andrews, uh, made a lot of thrillers and stuff. And he was the influence for Leonardo DiCaprio's character in this movie. Like oh, really? Martin Scorsese had Leonardo DiCaprio watch Dana Andrews in uh, Laura, particularly. But just mm. sort of the way that Dana Andrews carries himself um, was like sort of Leo's inspiration for this film. I know, but awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Best years of our lives. That was a movie. I think, I think I actually took like a war movie class in film school. And that was like one of my favorites of that whole semester. It was mm -hmm. just like that movie was just so, yeah, so wonderful. And it, 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 it wasn't one of those film school movies where you have to kind of like, 
all right, I'm going to like put my film school cap on and like look at it analytically. It was just like a lovely, lovely movie. It's yeah. a great so, film. Highly recommended. Like I had a different journey with it where I was like, Ugh, this is going to be one of those. But then by the end, ended up liking it despite myself. So <laughs> even I enjoyed that movie. <laughs> yeah. Mikey, he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard, oh God, I haven't heard that in a long time. People used to say that a lot in middle school. That's triggering a lot of memories, actually. Um uh, <laughs> So I watched, but also read The Big Sleep. Oh, um, nice. So I've seen the movie a bunch and I like, like, you know, really like the movie. And I was like, I've never actually read like one of the Raymond Chant. Like I should go and actually read one of these movies or one of these books. And so uh, I read it and I really enjoyed it. The plot, I think, made sense to me, which like has never happened in the movie and maybe doesn't actually make sense because there are. Or differences. There are definitely loose ends. But yes. yes. Yeah. And yeah, it was just a really interesting experience, both just comparing the movie to the book and how you adapt to those things, how you adapt something at the time period. But also the book goes into a lot more, uh, just a lot more, I feel like, than the movie. And it's like definitely racier and a little bit like, oh, well, 1940s. Like, OK, calm down, book. Uh, so I really enjoyed it, and I was like, I'm going to keep reading all of these. Um, what? So Trisha is so proud right I'm now. So I know. <laughs> I, read, I read words on a page. Um, oh, you read a classic crime novel. Yeah. Look at you. That's really good. Yeah, and it's like they're fascinating. Great. Yeah, they're, they're great, and it's like seeing the voice and just that, you know, the character, right, of, I'm blanking on the character's name. What's the character's Marlo? name? Marlo. Marlo, right. Philip Marlowe. Yeah. Like seeing, you know, it's that thing where you go and you read, you read or watch the thing that everything has sprung from. And you're like, oh, this is where. But like seeing it and reading it, just it's a really unique design of a protagonist. And I feel like reading it just reinforced that of like this really interesting blend of like he's you kind of like him, but he's kind of also like a dick. And like, what, how do you wrestle with that? And you're just caught up in it. Anyway, so it's really good. So yeah, the big sleep, read and watch. I recommend. For any of your bingo cards that two of us would have movies from 1946. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> you, and you it's win. not me. <laughs> yeah, <Not> Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Congratulations, latest. You're the listener with the right bingo card. <laughs> Noice. <laughs> Out here. All right. Yeah. <laughs> this has been our conversation about Shutter Island. Next week, we'll be talking about Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. That'll be a patron exclusive. And so if you want to help us make more episodes and check out that episode, as well as all the patron exclusives that we have recorded, there are many, 30, 40, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of episodes over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. Head over there. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next week for Killers of the Flower Moon. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>